All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Ask JP podcast. Today, we are extremely grateful to have Angel Harris, who is a candidate for criminal court judge. Angel began her career as a public defender in Louisiana, first in Orleans Parish, then in Calcasieu Parish, where she handled hundreds of cases. Angel has worked as a staff attorney with ACLU's Capital Punishment Project, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and the Justice Collaborative. Angel has focused on criminal justice reform throughout her career through direct representation, impact litigation, and policy. Additionally, she has worked with community organizers, stakeholders, and grassroots organizations to hold public officials accountable in an effort to implement criminal justice reform and build healthier and safer communities. Angel's commentary related to criminal justice reform has appeared in the New York Times, in the Huffington Post, as well as Democracy Now!, NPR's 1A, and The Roland Martin Show. Thank you so much for being with us today, Angel. We really appreciate it, and I'm super excited to kind of get to know you and find out, you know, how, how you want to deal with being a judge. So let's start. Let's go right into it. So the first okay. question is, why do you want to be a criminal court judge? <laughs> start with that one. It's a pretty broad. One. OK, um, well, you know, as you, you mentioned, I my entire career has been focused on criminal justice reform or criminal defense work. And so this seems like a natural extension of, of my work. But really, the reason why I want to be a criminal justice uh, lawyer is because I'm just tired. <laughs> I'm tired of asking for the same things over and over again. I'm tired of, you know, complaining about the system. And this is a way for me to be a person that can make decisions. Um, and, and so that's really what it boils down to is just being tired. Uh, and having worked in various jurisdictions, I've seen things that work. I've seen things that don't work. Um, and I've also just had an opportunity to look at the criminal court system from so many different angles, because it's very different, you know, when you're doing direct representation in court with your clients, talking with their families, interacting with them. But then it's very different when you're doing an impact litigation case where you're talking about the criminal justice system as a whole and how that impacts communities. And then, you know, as a, a person who's working in policy, how does that work out, you know, logistically through the legislation and, and working with community groups to come up with legislation? And so all of those experiences have really just pushed me towards this decision to say, you know, my previous jobs would have been a lot easier if the judges were doing the things that I, you know, that I, that I propose or, or what my platform is based on. And so that's why I'm running. It's really for the younger angel to, to say, you know, <laughs> if you were on the bench, your job would have been a lot easier. <laughs> well, and and leading, leading in our next question. So could you give the listeners kind of idea of what your judicial philosophy would be as far as like what they would expect if I'm a defendant or a victim and I'm coming to your court, what should I expect from judge Angel Harris? Absolutely. So throughout my campaign, I have said it is time for us to reimagine a criminal court system that's based in rehabilitation and not mass incarceration. And when I say that, what I mean is I don't mean that we aren't going to hold individuals accountable. And I'm sorry, it's really loud. I don't know if it's loud on your end, but they're it's doing not loud construction. On my end. You're good. Okay. Sorry. Good. They're doing construction next door. Uh, and so, you know, I'm not saying that we're not going to hold individuals accountable, 
But what I am saying is that there are underlying causes that are bringing people into the courtroom. There are root causes that bring people back and forth into the courtroom. We have individuals who are dealing with mental health. We have people who are dealing with drug addiction. We have people who are dealing with poverty and trauma. But we're not directly dealing with those root causes in a lot of the sentences that are being given to individuals. And so I think it's time for us to really look at what I call individualized justice. And so with that, a judge takes that defendant, that case, you know, and really looks at all of the facts and all of the circumstances surrounding it. And how do we deal with that individual? How do we ensure that that individual comes out as a whole person after they are sentenced in the courtroom? And my platform is based on three tenets. One, equal access to justice alternatives to incarceration, and stopping the criminalization of poverty. And I think if we start with those three things, then we really can have a criminal court system that produces healthier and safer communities. And even when we talk about victims, you know, as a defense attorney, one of the things that surprised me, I would say the most, was when I would have victims who would come to my office because they felt disrespected by the court system, by the judge, by the prosecutor. They felt like they weren't given the respect that they deserved, or they felt they were being bullied into certain um, certain offers or, or certain um, sentences for defendants and that their voices weren't heard. And so that was something that I definitely kept with me throughout my career, just having you know that conversation. And we talk about doing things in the name of the community and for the community, but I have community members telling me that's not what I want. That's not helping us. In fact, it's harming our community in a lot of ways. That's, that's an interesting point. What I mean, I, I'm sure this will be a robust answer, which I would appreciate. What are your current thoughts on the state of criminal justice in New Orleans, like well, the system itself? Like as far as as a practitioner, as someone who's hoping to be a judge in the system, mm-hmm. what is wrong with it? I, mean, I would say what's right with it, but there's not much right. So what's wrong with it? And what do you think as a judge you can help fix? Um, so I agree with your point. There's a lot wrong with it. Um, you know, first off, we hear the same statistic all the time that Louisiana is the incarceration capital of the world. And I heard that when I first started practicing, we're still hearing it now. You know, we also hear that New Orleans specifically leads the nation in wrongful convictions. And so if we have a system that's one incarcerating individuals at, you know, excessive amounts, but then we also have wrong convictions. That's showing me that what's happening in our courtroom is, you know, I've referred to it as a conveyor belt of justice. What's happening is that we are just processing people through without really thinking about what's happening. We're not considering the collateral consequences. We're not considering the impact on the community. And so I think that's the major problem. It's a lack of humanity, quite frankly, and compassion in our court system. And if we started to really think about people as individuals when they're coming in front of the court, I think that that would change a lot of what's happening in the criminal court system. And we won't allow a lot of things to stand that we are currently allowing to stand. Okay. Um, next, a couple of issues that are very specific to criminal court that would obviously impact you should you win and become a judge. The first is, what's your opinion on the cash bail system and how would you reform it if you think it needs to be reformed? So I... (laughs) 
As a public defender, one of the things that I saw a lot were my clients who were incarcerated pretrial simply because they couldn't afford to pay their bail, not because a judge determined that they were going to be somehow a danger to society, but because they couldn't post the $5,000, $10,000, sometimes $1,000 bail. And so I think that that's a problem. I think that we can't say our system is just when we're preying on poor people. You know, it's... It always baffles me because the community, when we talk about bail, there's, there are fear-mongering um, campaigns that come around, right? They're like, oh, you can't just let everybody out on bail. But the reality of the situation is when we really look at who's being held on bail, it, the majority of the people aren't people that are going to do harm to the community. And so I think that that's something that needs to be discussed. And actually COVID-19 exposed a lot of that because when we start looking at, wait a minute, you know, prisons and jails are basically incubators for COVID-19. We need to relieve some of that pressure. Who can we let out? There are a long list of people who actually didn't need to be incarcerated during that time. And so they were put on a list to be released. And so I think that COVID, unfortunately it took COVID-19 to have people to start really reprocessing and thinking about why is that person still being incarcerated, particularly pre-trial, you know, for theft of, you know, deodorant out of the CVS because this is her third theft. It's a felony conviction. And so she has a thousand dollar, $5,000 bail, but she can't afford to pay it. But really all that she did was take deodorant out of a CVS, but we're taking, you know, and, and it costs money to house people in the jails. And so I think that's something that we need to think about. And we always talk about, you know, when people hear about my platform and they hear me say alternatives to incarceration, they say, well, how do you plan on paying for it? Well, if we weren't incarcerating this woman for stealing deodorant, we'd actually have money because we're paying to house her in that jail. And what we could actually do is give maybe even a fraction of that money to help, you know, her or her family so that way she doesn't have to still deodorant from CBS. Okay. Um, mandatory minimums. Uh, obviously, they're a big topic of discussion in the criminal justice system. As a judge, potential judge, what is your position on mandatory minimums? So, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that I believe in what I call individualized justice. So I actually don't... Um, Mandatory minimums make me uncomfortable because mandatory minimums don't allow judges or prosecutors to really look at the circumstances surrounding a case. Not every case is the same. Just because something is called, you know, we'll just use battery for an example. When you look at the circumstances or the facts around it, something that comes into your mind into what a battery is or what an assault is may be very different from what actually transpi transpired in that situation. When we're talking about, you know, individuals who know each other. And so when we talk about car theft or when we talk about um, unauthorized use of a motor vehicle, that happened a lot when I was practicing. And really what it was, was someone's nephew took their car without their permission. They called the police and then the police, you know, would arrest them. And that's a felony charge. But then once the car was returned, the uncle would say, I just wanted my car back. I don't want him to go to jail. I don't want his life to be ruined. And so, but then they're like, well, this is an unauthorized, you know, use of a motor vehicle. <laughs> It's a felony. You can't, you know, we can't do anything about it. 
Um, and so I think that ties people's hands. I also think um, when we talk about multiple offender bills, you know, that creates, you know, the, these sort of mandatory minimums that can really disrupt someone's life. You know, and there were articles earlier this year where the, um, you know, Justice uh, Johnson talked about the the man who ended up facing life in prison. But I've had, you know, my own uh, cases where I've had clients who, because of some of their prior convictions, they got arrested again for a very minor offense, but then they were facing life in prison. But they, you know, the last time that they had a serious case or a serious charge was several years. And this maybe was like a small theft, like stealing meat out of their neighbor's deep freezer in their shed. And so now they're facing life in prison or they were walking down the street and they had a joint under their hat. And so now I'm fighting for literally fighting for their life because a multiple offender bill has been filed against them. And I just don't think that that's fair. And I don't think that it's a good use of our resources when we are, you know, particularly for those types of cases, someone then is spending their entire life in prison. And who does that benefit? Once again, going back to cost, not to continue to have a fiscal, right. you know, conversation, but housing someone for life in prison costs a lot of money. Well, and I mean, to, as a former public defender, I certainly empathize with you because I remember I used to beg clients not to take a quick plea because mm -hmm. they've been, let's say they've been locked up for, with a, let's say they got a marijuana charge and they've been sitting in jail for three days waiting to get their hearing in front of a judge. They get there and probation sounds great. They're like, I'll plead guilty. I'll get probation. And you're saying, I know you don't want to hear this, but if mm -hmm. you plead guilty to this joint, what they're not telling you is three joints down the line, you could be in jail for 25 years. And they're like, why well, I just want to get out? And it's like, you can't ever really articulate to someone who's looking at serving more time in jail, whether it be an extra day, an extra month, an extra year, the threat of that and probation being on the table to make them understand your plea today can screw you 10 years from now. Right. And I mean, mm -hmm. To your point, mandatory bills have always made me very uncomfortable because it puts you in a position where people literally make decisions when they're 18 that screw them when they're 28. Right, exactly. And, and I mean, it's, 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 it's mm -hmm. despicable. But next question, death penalty. What's your position on the death penalty? So obviously I, I worked for the ACLU's Capital Punishment <laughs> Project um, and I did capital uh, defense work on the appellate side. So I, my, my personal belief, um, I, I don't think that we should be executing individuals. I know that as a judge in Louisiana, the death penalty is still an option on the table. Um, and so I do though really believe if we are going to utilize the death penalty in the state of Louisiana, then we need to make sure that that individual's rights are being uh, protected and that the system is a fair system. We know that there are racial disparities when it comes to one, who is even facing the death penalty, but even on top of that, the, the race of the victim also determines who's going to face the death penalty. And I think we just, the way that our system is, is working, it's just unfair. And so it's a very one-sided system. And that's something that we need to think about and really consider that we are sort of very lightly exposing or risking one group of individuals' lives, but not others. Um, and, and, 
you know, also when we think about drug protocols, and I don't want to get too technical, but right. like as a capital defense lawyer, I've had to do briefs about this. No, you we, know, we, 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 we've <laughs> debated the legislature, the drug protocol issue up and down in that there is Supreme Court, there is Supreme Court case law that says you can't just put Drano in someone's veins. You have to right. actually follow the protocol and you can't have mystery cocktails that are hidden from the right. public or anything else. And we're at a point now in Louisiana where I don't know how you execute somebody, you execute somebody constitutionally at this point. Right. No, absolutely. And there are backroom deals being made. So you want to talk about drug dealers, right? <laughs> yeah, you I mean, know, you have I mean, the backdoor you, dealing of execution drugs. Um, and you also have doctors who are refusing to help with executions because right. they say that it goes against their oath. And so those are things we really need to have public conversations about. The public needs to know what's being done in their name. Well, I mean, to, to your point, and I hate to like get off of of, of the of the the criminal court topic, but I mean it's a point that people need to realize. I know from my experience as a legislator and as a public defender, there oftentimes the victims' families don't want the death penalty. They go, "I don't believe in it. I don't want it." And right. across the state, prosecutors go, "I don't care. They're eligible." And I mean, if the death penalty is not going to be a deterrent, which it is empirically not a deterrent, people who are committing a murder. They're not thinking, oh, I don't want to go get murdered. They that's right. not in their thought process. So deterrence right. a failure. But even if you go with the baseline biblical vengeance argument, well, if the family of the affected person doesn't want them executed, what is the purpose at that point of executing the person? And I mean, more often than not, you would think I have run across people who said, I told the DA, life in prison's fine. I don't want this person's death on my conscience. Right. And prosecutors just go, it's eligible. I'm going for it. And I mean, mm -hmm. I, I respect the fact, certainly that as a judge, like you are hamstrung by the law, the law is the law. So mm -hmm. uh, my last question in this kind of vein is, do you consider yourself a reform candidate? And if so, why are you a reform candidate? <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I proudly consider myself a reform candidate. I mean, that's my entire platform. We're talking about reimagining a system, really changing and shifting the way that we are doing things because we don't have to do them the way that we've been doing them. So yes, I proudly, um, am, you know, I, I have been a part of criminal justice reform from the very beginning of my career. Uh, you know, just, yeah, the system is the system isn't working for the majority of us in society. Um, but unfortunately, the system is working the way that it was designed to work. And so, you know, that's why we really have to shift gears and we really need to start pushing back. And, you know, that's why it's important for people to, you know, vote uh, with about the judges, you know, and because then they do have a voice, then they do have a choice. And that's why I'm glad that you are doing this series so folks can have um, you know, an opportunity to sort of hear about these issues more in depth and sort of even do additional research on top of that. Okay. Well, um, keep it clean, but why are you more qualified than your opponent? I say keep it clean because I, I never know what's going to come out of people's mouths, but I'm like, I just want to hear about why do you think <laughs> you're more qualified than your opponent or opponents or opponent? So first off, my name is Angel. So I generally keep <laughs> things clean. I live up to my name. Um, <laughs> no, I, but seriously, I think, you know, 
just with my with my background and with the core of it being in criminal justice with various functions like i have studied the criminal justice system not only in louisiana but all over the united states i have you know i've written about it i've talked about it but also i've practiced in it so it's not just theoretical I know what it's like working with families and working with communities. I also, though, have a level of compassion that comes with it. I also have been um, trained in trauma-informed criminal justice responses. And I have, you know, taught CLEs about the impact of our court system on women and girls, because that's not a topic that's talked about in our criminal court system. We don't talk about the fact that the incarceration rate for women and girls has increased over 700% from the 1970s. What we don't talk about is that Uh, where they're being incarcerated are local jails. So when we have federal legislation that talks about changing our court system, women and girls are being left out of those reforms because what needs to happen is on the local level because they are being housed in those. They aren't being housed in the larger federal prisons and and, and things like that. And so I think with that knowledge and, and with that background, that's what makes me more qualified. I also think that there's a human element to it. Like we can talk about credentials all day long, but I think what's missing in our court system is, you know, and I, and I've said this, it's humanity. You know, when you are dealing with not only defendants, but victims, but also the attorneys that are working in your courtroom, there should be a level of respect for everyone who walks into the courtroom. And we can't have a criminal court system that disregards or disrespects the people who are entering into the doors. And I think that I bring that to the courtroom. I mean, it's it's a great a very interesting perspective, I know, because I, while I was working with Regina Barrow, a senator in Baton Rouge over this issue, as someone does doesn't do a lot of practice uh, with court with, with with jail reform in particular, as far as like an attorney fighting impact and the like, you learn things like women in jail have to buy their tampons in the commissary. Yeah. So we had to have legislation that we had to pass to say no everyone's entitled to feminine hygiene products. If they're in jail, you don't have to pay for it. And I mean, that's the kind of basic stuff where the average person thinks that there's a level of humanity applied across the board Mm -hmm. of just treating people with fairness and equity. And we Mm -hmm. have to legislate that you have to give women and girls tampons while they're in jail. And I mean, that was kind of, that that was like a gut check to me. I was like, wait, we don't Mm -hmm. provide those. No, they have to pay for it out the commissary. Or that they shouldn't be shackled while they're giving birth, right? These are things that because the majority of the people incarcerated are men, these aren't things that there aren't policies around it or people aren't thinking about it. And, you know, it's really time for us to to start thinking about those things and also what's bringing them into, you know, prisons and jails. When you look at the statistics and once again, I don't want to get too much into the numbers, but when you look at the statistics, about 80% of women who are incarcerated have some type, have dealt with some type of trauma, have dealt with some type of physical violence or sexual violence. And so they're coming into the jail with that background. Also, 90% of you know, women who are incarcerated are generally caretakers or, you know, or, or mothers. And so what happens to the family when those women are incarcerated and how does that impact that family? And so, you know, those are just 
things that, that aren't discussed, you know, it's, it's, it's an invisible, you know, a lot of these women are rendered invisible once they are incarcerated. They are, they're just forgotten in the system. That's all great points. Is there anything else you'd like to add today for people to consider who are making a decision on November 3rd? Well, no. So Angel Harris running for criminal district court judge, section L number 97. I, you know, I really, and I, and I mean this, like I am excited about the fact that the people of New Orleans get a chance to decide who's sitting on the bench and who's, you know, really going to be a representative for the community. That is what the judge is there. The judge is supposed to be the mediator. The judge is supposed to make sure that they are helping to create healthier and safer communities. And we all have a say in that on November 3rd. And it's time for us to exercise that right. You know, I, um, there was a recent article and it said that an incumbent in criminal district court hasn't been unseated since the early 1970s because people just don't, one, they just don't go against incumbents, but two, you know, people sort of want to go with the status quo. And so I am imploring everyone to let's move past the status quo. Let's shake things up. Let's do big things and let's create a better New Orleans. All right. Well, and also don't forget to your websites behind your head, but uh, what's your Twitter, <laughs> Twitter or any other social media people to know about? So the website is angelforjudge.com. My social media is Angel for Nola. So on all social media platforms. Okay. Well, thank you very much for being here today. It's been very exciting talking to you. And I look forward to seeing you on the campaign trail virtually six, 12 feet apart. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, have a great day.